Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Every year for the last uh, 13 years, this weekend has been a weekend where I have gone up north um, to a camp in the woods with uh, a student ministry group uh, from Community Church Fond du Lac. And we would spend the whole weekend walking around in the woods and playing broomball on the ice and ice skating and cross-country skiing. And then the, throughout the course of the weekend, it was just a way to open up a fire hydrant on kids and talk to them about who God is and how he made them to be. And every, every year was a different theme. This year, or this weekend right now, they're up there uh, right now. And I wonder if before we jump into sermon time, uh, if we could, as a body, pray for them, uh, because I know the weekend is just an intense one. Are you guys okay with that? Yeah. Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the work that you do in people. I thank you for the work that you do in young lives, um, the way that you call even young people to you in middle school and high school. And I pray as community church um, leaders and students are up in the woods this weekend that I pray that you have been all over that camp. And even now as they start to wrap up their weekend and come home, I pray that you would give them things to cling to about who you are and how they've opened up to you and opened up to each other. I pray that you'd bring them home refreshed. I pray that you'd bring them home as difference makers for you, that the whole church in Fond du Lac would feel ripples because of this weekend uh, and the work that you've done in their lives. I'm so thankful for the leaders who continue to invest uh, in these young lives, and I pray that you'd make them faithful and diligent um, as they as they invest there. Thank you for this weekend, and I thank you. I thank you for the transforming work you do in calling people home. We pray over them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for that. Um, hey, Aaron Rodgers is pretty cool, huh? Aaron Rodgers had two hail marys this year that connected. Um, and I don't know if you're a Packers fan, but if you are, those are the kind of plays that make you shout. Those are the plays that make you jump up and start dancing around, uh, playing the Lions, and he heaves back for this unbelievable, who else in the world could make that throw? And then the guy comes down with it, and you're like, what just happened? And then it happens again, and it looks like they, they have a chance to keep going on in the playoffs, and then hope is dashed, and we're all depressed, and uh, we figure out how to go on with our lives. Two. Two times in one season. It doesn't usually happen like that, right? It's far more common in sports that we miss the mark. It's far more common in sports that you have a last-second heave that doesn't connect. My last uh, soccer game in high school, I will always remember as uh, we're down by one and I have the ball and the seconds tick away to the end whistle and I have that last second shot, and I watch it fall short. I say, it doesn't connect. It doesn't do it. Um, Last year in the Super Bowl, when Russell Wilson marches the team down the field, and he throws the, what would be the go-ahead touchdown to win the game, only to be intercepted in the end zone. And depending on if you're uh, a Russell Wilson or Seahawks fan or a Patriots fan, you're either jumping up and down celebrating or jumping down and then feeling defeated and devastated. I was talking to some uh, Vikings fans this weekend, and we remember very differently the NFC Championship game where Brett Favre marches the team down the field against the Saints, and all he has to do is take an E and kick a field goal, and Brett Favre does what Brett Favre kind of always sort of often did. He throws an interception. And Packers fans have this sort of sinful ah, reaction. And Vikings fans have this ah, reaction. Depending on what side you're on, it really changes how you react. We are a people who time and time and time and time again miss the mark. We're going to get into sin today. John talks about sin, and part, part of the understanding of sin comes from this idea of missing a mark. To have a target, to aim at a target, but to miss, 
to not connect. And if you're into sports, you know that all too well. But if you're into life, you start to see, I'm, I miss the mark all the time. This isn't a complete understanding of sin, because if we're honest, sometimes we're not even aiming to hit the mark, right? Sometimes we see the target here, and we just walk around and turn in the opposite direction and say, I'm, I'm going to go throw at this other target for now. This, this idea of sin only applies to people who are trying to hit a target. So it's not full. Sin is a universal, is a universal problem. And John, this pastor John addressing his church, jumps right in and says, we got to talk about it. So before we open up the Bible uh, and jump into 1 John at the end of chapter 1, um, let's review just a little bit. We're jumping into this series through 1 John that we're calling Radiant. And the whole idea is that God is radiant, that God is pure light and pure love. And if you get anywhere close to him, he just radiates out and you find yourself uh, captured by his glory and yet welcomed in uh, by who he is and his invitation. And John over and over and over again in his congregation says, it matters how you live. And if you claim to live in Jesus, your life should be modeled after him. And as we see him as radiant, and as we open up and allow ourselves to be transformed by him, we become more radiant. That we get brighter and brighter and brighter, and we start loving better and better and better. That we start to live a radiant light and a radiant love kind of life. John is addressing some challenges and some conflict that comes up in his church. And he says, uh, on the road to radiance, there are roadblocks. There are hindrances that would keep us back from that. One of them, one of them that John addresses is he gets into it this morning. One of them is people who feel like they have grown to such spiritual heights that they don't have a sin problem anymore. That they, they are able to escape the problem of sin. They don't struggle with it anymore. And they would push away anybody who does. And so John says, hey, we got to talk. I, this is not okay. And if you start believing that you don't have a sin problem, and if you start teaching that to others, sickness is going to run through our camp. And we are... We are at risk of uh, death entering our community. And so John, ent uh, he enters into that rather than just kind of uh, saying, ah, oh, we'll just let it slide. John says, let's face this head on. So let's read together. Um, we're going to read a, a pretty long section. And then this morning, we're going to break it up into three sections. I love, I love how John walks through sin with his people. In 1 John, we're going to start in verse 8, and then we're going to go all the way through um, chapter 2, verse 6. John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray. Father, as we dig into your word, as we try to get in and unpack it and, and understand what you're saying and understand um, how you would have us respond. I pray that you would make us humble. I pray that you would make us people who are able to hear a word that says we are guilty and we are shameful. 
Help us not to be defensive, but help us to, to be the kind of people that says, yeah, that's me. Would you help us to do that so we can see how great you are? We could glorify you. We'd be open up to being changed by you. Help us to do that this morning. We pray Jesus in your name. Amen. So John starts out this first section, uh, verses 8 through 10. says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John uh, talks about two different ways of thinking about sin that are incorrect. And he's going he's gonna to kind of confront them both in these, two, in these three verses right here. The first says, I'm not responsible for my sin. I got stuff. Sure, everybody's got stuff. But I'm not responsible because we deflect and we blame other things or circumstances or people. So I wonder if we could just kind of take some, I want to include you guys in this. And if you have ideas, you can shout it out. What kind of things do we blame for our sin? So an example, we could start it out and then you can toss out ideas, would be my family. Right? The family that I grew up in was broken, and my dad had all kinds of issues, and my mom had all kinds of issues, and they raised me in a broken way, and so I'm broken. And so I do these things because of the family I was raised in. It's not my fault. It's their fault. Right? Is that an example of us deflecting? Can you think of other ways that we deflect? Say what? Poverty. I still didn't. Poverty. Poverty. I'm... I live, I live here. I can't live this other way. I'm stuck here. And so I, I'm going to blame this for my actions. Okay? Yep. What else? Physical. Physical what? Health. Health? Yeah. All the time. Okay. So maybe illness is an example, but how about just sleep? Do you ever do that? Say, I didn't get the amount of sleep I need, and I'm cranky, so back off. That never happens in our family, okay? Um, probably yours. We've, we've ascended to heights higher than that, um, <laughs> or not, okay? Sleep affects you. Sleep affects, or lack of sleep affects you. And so we, I, I mean, I can very easily say, I'm tired, leave me alone. That gives me permission to be a jerk. Right? And I would, I, I push that off on something else. What else? Stress. Say what? Stress. 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 Um, you should know this about me. <laughs> Actually, honestly, if I, if I, uh, kind of confessing, you know, I'm a little bit hard of hearing. Um, so I, just me being a broken person. Um, <laughs> Stress does have that. I've got all these kinds of things. Some of them might be good things in my life that are pressing down on me, but there's a weight because of it. Some of them, some stresses are bad stress. Like I take on things that I shouldn't, right? But they have this way of saying, I'm all pent up. And so I do this. It's not my fault. It's the stress that's going on in me. We would blame our environment. It's the people that I'm with. I wouldn't do this except that I'm with them. They, they kind of made me do it, okay? We could blame our genes. <laughs> if you wear really tight, or if your family, <laughs> your family history affects who you are, right? So my grandfather had this problem, and my dad had this problem, and I had this problem. It runs in the family. So Colwyn men have anger issues, okay? My grandfather had anger issues, my dad has anger issues. His brothers have anger issues. Um, and I do too. And I mask it. But if you ever get to see my ugliness, you see somebody who can bite pretty quickly and pretty hard. There are tempers in our family that somehow, sometimes just come out of nowhere. And it'd be real easy to just say, this is hereditary. This is just who I am. 
This is what has gone on in my family. And so I can blame it on them or my personality. Like, this is just the way God wired me. I'm wired in such a way that this is how I respond to some things. God made some people really dominant. So they always take charge. And sometimes they can bully others. And we say, oh, that's, that's just who they are. Like, no, sin is still sin, right? Acting inappropriately, maybe understanding your personality helps me understand why you do that. But you're still accountable for your actions. Or some people have real passive personalities. Say, they, I, I don't, I don't want to get in. I don't want to stir the water. I don't want to create conflict. Sometimes when they should, that's just my personality. And we can deflect. And we can say, it's not my thing because of this. There are so many things that allow us to deflect and not feel or not own our sin. Do you guys have them? Have you ever found yourself pushing sin off to say, yeah, but here's why, and here's why I'm justified in it, and here's why it's okay, and here's why you should get off my back, right? We all have those things. So the question is, do those things affect you? Yes, absolutely. We shouldn't just dismiss them to say, that's meaningless, get over it, okay? Let's address those things. Do those things make you not responsible for your sin? No. Your sin is your sin. You have to own up to it. The commentator William Barclay said, it is a human characteristic that we seek to shuffle out of the responsibility for sin. Have you ever been a weasel? And you just kind of like try and dodge. I have. I, I do it all the time, actually. It's embarrassing. And John says, John says, it doesn't matter. When it comes to your sin, your upbringing, your genes, your stress, your environment, your health, uh, all kinds of these things, kind of irrelevant. It's still your sin. It's like my three-year-old Micah loves playing hide-and-seek right now, but we got to play by his rules. And so he'll find a spot on the couch, and he'll say, don't count yet. Dad, put the blanket over me. (laughs) Okay, Dad, now you can count. (laughs) Like, you're right. Yeah, count, Dad. Count. And I'll walk around like, I wonder if he's under the piano. I wonder if he's over. Oh, he's under the blanket that I put. We're like that. We feel like we can cover up and then it's all good. Then we won the game. And it's not true. We deflect responsibility. And when we do it, John says, we are deceived. Like Micah hiding under the blanket, thinking he's winning, thinking, I got the best spot this time. It's the same spot the last 10 times. Every time we have that same excuse, we deceive ourselves. So the first group that John addresses is the group that tries to deflect responsibility. And the second one is that says, like, I haven't sinned. I'm good. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Really, if, if I look around and compare myself to everybody else, I... I bet I'm better than 75%. Like, I feel real good today. There are days that I might dip into the 60s, but really, I'm, I'm better than average. How many people think they're under average when it comes to being a good person? Most of us think we're better than we actually are. But here's the problem with the good person argument. It only holds up when we compare ourselves to those around us. It only holds up when we compare ourselves to others. And we like to pick the bad ones to compare ourselves to, right? We like to pick people who are easy targets uh, to say, I'm better than that. I'm better than she is or I'm better than he is. But when it comes to what's going on in our soul, the comparison isn't against other people. The comparison is up against perfection. So if we say sin, to sin is to miss the mark. We all 
even if we would say, no, I'm a good person. There is not one of us who would say, I've never missed the mark. I've never messed something up. And I would go even farther to say, if we're honest, everyone in this room has messed up on purpose. Not just accidentally. Not just, oh, this happened to me and I'm broken. We broke it. We did it intentionally. Not, every, not all the time, but sometimes we do. And so, if we aren't as good a father or mother or wife or husband or son or daughter or friend or employee or employer as we could be, we're sinning. James says, anybody who knows the good stuff they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So sin isn't just bad stuff we do. Sin is the good stuff that we don't do. Have you ever seen a need and kept going? Say, no, I really feel like God is poking me to do this thing. Nah, today. That's sin. And we do it We do it on both sides of the spectrum. We do all kinds of bad stuff, and we don't do all kinds of good stuff. And imperfection is all over us. Romans 3.23 says, this is a human characteristic. It says, all have sinned. Every single person in the history of the world has fallen short of the glory of God. You have, and I have, and everybody in John's church had. And John says, if we say we haven't sinned, if we say, no, I'm good, we're actually calling God a liar. If God is going to say, you are sinful, and we say, no, I think you're wrong, we're calling him a liar. John wants us to get to the point where we say, I have stuff. I've got sin. I've made a mess. So there's the question. Do you see your sin? Do you hide your sin? Do you dismiss your sin and say, nah, I don't, I don't think it's an issue or I don't think it's my fault? And then at the times when you're alone, do you have a nagging sense that all is not well? You can't run away from it. In some ways, that's exactly where God wants you. Rather than hiding or deflecting, that we would start to own it. That we'd start to admit it. That we would hang our head. That we would feel our guilt and feel our shame. In some ways, shame and guilt have been overplayed by religion and Christianity. And Christianity has been used to press shame down on people inappropriately. But shame and guilt are real. And shame and guilt, if they're real, and if we just dismiss it, that doesn't help us. If we do something shameful and we feel shame for it, that's God poking at us to call us back. And if we just dumb our ears to it, if we say, I don't want to listen to that, that doesn't help us. Leslie, had an argu- Leslie and I had an argument this week. Is that okay to admit? I was dumb. It was about a microwave. Okay? So, we're, it's getting a little heated, and I threw something out like, why are you like this? Why are you doing this, which isn't ever really a good kind of way to ask a question. And Leslie said, this is your thing. Quit putting that on me. This is the way you entered into this and the way you're trying to put this on me is unfair. This is yours. You're right. I don't like it when you're right and when I'm wrong. And I had that moment of I'm shameful. I'm trying to deflect and I'm trying to make it about her. And it's my stuff. 
You ever do that? At the heart of real Christianity is people who admit they are broken, who admit they are guilty and shameful, and it's on them. To this, John says something surprising. Once we recognize that we have sin, once we recognize that we continue to sin, once we turn to God, John says God is faithful and he's just to forgive us. We might have thought that a just God would condemn us. To sin is to fail. To sin is to wreck relationships. To sin is to earn death. And God in his justice would have every right, and we might actually expect him to exact justice. Would he be right, righteous and just, if he called us to account and if he laid the burden of sin on our shoulders? Absolutely. Now John says he's faithful and just, and he forgives us. That God can't just hide under the blanket and pretend the issue isn't there. God can't just kind of wave his hand and say, your sin is gone. I'll pretend it never, ever happened. Sin is brokenness. Sin is death. And you can't just make it go away. It's got consequences. So how can God be just and forgive? John's answer is Jesus. He answers in John uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says, my little children, and I love this because John loves them and takes this fatherly approach to them. Says, this is something that is so serious. It can kill you and it can rip the church apart. But I'm here with you. Let's take it together. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. You've got to get sin out of your life. But... If anyone does sin, who's that? All of us. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. John says, for the sin of disease, Jesus is the cure. He says, I'm writing these things so that you won't sin. I don't want you to sin, but Jesus... Jesus, because you all have it, you've all sinned, Jesus came to deal with that. And John calls Jesus our advocate. And the idea of advocate has been, some, have, some translations have uh, written it as comforter, someone who will come alongside you and bring comfort. Um, and it's a bigger idea too, that um, the advocate is someone who will come alongside you and argue on your behalf. Someone who will come alongside and fight for you. So if you've ever heard somebody say, Jesus is for you, and you thought, that sounds a little weird, like God is for me. Like, I think you can take it lightly, but I think if you understand the idea of advocate, it's all true. Jesus comes alongside and fights for you on your behalf. The righteous one he's called by John. So we are all unrighteous. We've all got sin that has stained us and made us unrighteous. And Jesus is described as being the righteous one. So he's at the top of your list of references, right? You want to argue your case in front of the father, the judge? Jesus is at the top of the list. He's the only one who makes the list. Anybody ever applied for a job and said, I would like three references on you. I'd like to do some checking on you. You don't just go to Walgreens and say, hey, would you be a reference for me? Unless, like, your best friend is working at Walgreens, and then it works, okay? But you don't ask strangers to be your reference. You ask people who know you and who have some credentials, some credibility, so that when the employer looks at that and says, oh, I'd I'd like to hear from this person. And if somebody that they'd like to hear from speaks well of you, 
you're in a much better position. If you don't want to get a job and you're applying, this is a good tip. Just get bad references. Get somebody who's like, he put me as a reference? I have no idea why. That guy's a crook. Okay? You're not going to do too well. Jesus goes on the top of our list of references. If Jesus would speak for us, that says a lot. Romans 3.10 says we're all, like there's no one righteous, not even one. And then Jesus is called that to understand he is in the unique position to argue for it. And then John answers the how. How in the world is Jesus in that position? And John says he's the propitiation for our sins. How many of you guys use that word this week? <laughs> right? Joe messed it up last week or two weeks ago. <laughs> Not to point you out, but it's because we don't use that word. Who uses the word propitiation? Here, here's what it means. I had to look it up, okay? I'm not going to stand up and like act like I got all this. Propitiation is atoning sacrifice, which clears up everything. Okay? Because how many of you guys this week said that was an atoning sacrifice? Okay? Atonement, the idea of atonement means something is broken, and the atonement brings it back uh, to where it, it restores it. It reconciles it. It brings it back. So... Sacrifice is something that shows up all throughout the Old Testament. God calls a people to be his people. He calls them out of nothing to be the nation that would follow him, that he would bless, that he would give his favor to. And he says, I want you to be different. I want you to be holy. I want you to be different from the nations around you. You're going to live a different way. You're going to be righteous because I'm righteous. You're going to be radiant because I'm radiant, except I know you're going to fail. And so when you fail and when you break our relationship with your unrighteousness, I'm going to make a way so that you can come back. I'm going to make a way so that you can be restored. And that way was sacrifice. It wasn't pretending that there was no problem. It wasn't just saying, I'll look past that one. God says sacrifice is going to be the way that sins get covered over. And so every morning and every evening, sacrifices were made and they had festivals where sacrifices would be made for the sins that they knew about and the sins that they didn't know about because there's all kinds of sin in our lives that I'm not even aware of that you're not aware of that we haven't we're not that in touch with our lives to understand how sinful we are and so they'd make sacrifices saying I know there's something every year they'd have this a grand celebration. It was the pinnacle of the year called the Day of Atonement in which animals were slaughtered for the sins of the nation. And though the sin was great, something else suffered the consequences. The consequences of sin is death. And something else bore that. These sacrifices atoned. These sacrifices paved the way so that people could have a restored relationship with God. But day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, God says, it can't keep going like this. I will not say that sin isn't serious. God says, we need to figure this out. We need a way to deal with sin once and for all. And the deal with sacrifices is it wasn't fair. Sin, the fair response to sin is judgment. Sacrifice was an unfair response. So some innocent animal died because of my sin. And, man, we don't do sacrifices anymore, and I'm thankful for that. But there's something to say, if you had taken that animal, an innocent animal, and you had killed it and said, my sin caused that, and you see it, and you watch it bleed, and you watch it breathe its last, 
there would have been a gravity, a seriousness that you would not have easily overlooked. And I think God, it's God in his grace saying, I want you to see how serious your sin is. And I want you to understand the gift of restoration that you are being given. God says, I don't want it to go on like this forever. I'm going to make a different way. And Hebrews 10 says that Jesus became the sacrifice. That his sacrifice was a once for all sacrifice. Now, this is mind-blowing to me. Because I can think of Jesus making a sacrifice for me. But when I start to think about Jesus being the sacrifice for me, something changes. So not only did it cost Jesus a lot, he was the one whose life, whose life was taken because of me. He was the innocent life. He was the perfect, innocent life that took the consequences on him. There's a story in the Old Testament in Genesis 22 where God calls Abraham um, who he had called and said, you're going to be the father of my nation and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to give you children and your children are going to get so numerous you won't even be able to count them. And Abraham goes years and years and years and no child and no child and no child. And finally the child of promise shows up. The child that is like God's fulfillment of the, pros, uh, of the promise. And Isaac is in his life and they're celebrating and then God says, Abraham, I want you to take and I want you to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. I want you to kill him. And this wasn't such a like a weird request because Abraham could look at all the neighboring uh, communities and the gods that they worship demanded human sacrifice. So Abraham's like, well, this is how gods do it. I follow this God. I'm going to follow through. And Abraham and Isaac take a three-day journey and they climb up a mountain, up on a hill. Isaac actually carries the wood the whole way. And Isaac, a lot of people think, uh, he's like a little little kid. A lot of people actually think this guy's probably um, maybe even in his young 30s. Uh, he's a grown man, but he's still son uh, to Abraham. And they walk to the altar, and Isaac gets on the altar, and Abraham raises the knife. And as he's about to plunge it down into his son, God says, stop, 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 stop. I love your obedience, but I'm not like the other gods. I'm not like that. I cherish life, and I want to show you how different I am. I will make a different way. God saves Isaac, and God spares Abraham the father the loss of his son. But if you fast forward to the life of Jesus, you see a father whose son climbs a hill carrying the wood. And as the blows are coming down, the father doesn't, there is no stopping. This time, the innocent life is ended. This time, Jesus is killed. He didn't just make a sacrifice on our behalf. He doesn't just argue for us. He became the sacrifice for us. Because of our unrighteousness. This, this is the mind-blowing part. And this then is, begins the invitation to the celebration. That Jesus in his perfect life would be snuffed out. He is the atonement. He is the atoning sacrifice. Not just so that sin is dealt with, but so that we could be restored. We could be restored to life with God and fellowship with God. Jesus took your shame and your guilt and he put it on him. And so we don't just dismiss guilt and shame. We feel it. And then we say, Jesus died for this. And I can give it to him. He already paid for it. He already paid for it. And I can, I can give it to him. If you have never received forgiveness, if you are walking around today 
and you feel the weight of your sin in guilt and shame. Good. Now, understand that you can be forgiven. Understand that Jesus took that. And he reaches out to you and he invites you back into a restored relationship with the Father. If you have received forgiveness, never forget. Would you walk around the rest of your life as not one who is better, but one who has been rescued, one who has been redeemed, one who has been atoned for and brought back? Would you never forget that? Like, I wonder if we could just stop here for a moment and pray. And, and if you are in the room and you have never come to Jesus and said, I, I need your forgiveness. Man, if your heart and chest are burning, maybe this is a time where you would say, Jesus, I want to be yours. And if this is something that is burning in you, you say, I have a relationship, but I know that I still have a sin problem. Jesus, would you keep taking it? Because you do. Can we stop and pray right here? Father, when we are honest, we have to admit that we are full of sin. I am, and everyone in this room is. On my own, I am broken, and on my own, I do the breaking. I'm ugly, and we are. Father, I believe that you sent your son not to condemn us as a just God could have done, but you sent your son to become a sacrifice on my behalf, on our behalf, on everybody's behalf. Father, right now, this morning, there are people here, I think, who are still carrying the weight of their sin. The burden is still on them. And I pray this morning that you would do business in their hearts, that you would crack them open, that that you would help them to feel their guilt and feel their shame, and then understand that they can give it to you. For those of us who have received your forgiveness, all we can say is thank you. Help us never forget. Help us always remember. Help us to live out of that and to give it to others to not judge others, but to invite others to you. Jesus, you came so that we could have life. Help us with that. Thank you, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. It's just as sort of a way of invitation, I would say, if, if God is working on you, don't leave here without talking to somebody. Like we'll have we'll have people up front. We'll be we'll be around. You can turn to the person next to you and say, "I gotta talk about this." Don't leave here without talking to somebody and and maybe even praying with them to say, "I want to deal with stuff." The, so John says, John says we've got to be done deflecting. We've got to be done denying. We've got to understand our sin and Jesus. Jesus paid for it. And then John asks the question, well, how do we know if it's real for us? How do we know if it's taken root in our lives? How do I know if I've been changed, if I have a relationship with Christ, if I've been forgiven? And this is how he, this is how he closes this section. John, uh, 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6 says, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
You know what John says? Followers of Jesus follow Jesus. It says, it does you no good to claim you have a relationship with God when you look no different than the rest of the world. It does no good to claim you have been forgiven of your sins when nothing changes. The point of Jesus isn't just to get you back to heaven and pretend that everything's fine. The point of Jesus is that your sins are gone and you are free to be restored to the person that God created you to be. You're restored to fellowship. You're restored to a life that is changed. And so if you aren't changed, then what happened? John says, nothing. If you claim to live in him and yet you, like you don't obey him. I don't know that this is real. You're a liar, is what John says. That means followers of Jesus follow Jesus. Believers of Jesus believe Jesus. Christian, the term came up. People started mocking people who were following Jesus and calling them little Christs. And that's what the term Christian meant. Because they were imitating Christ. Because they were living how he lived. To be a Christian is to be one who follows Jesus and imitates him. So John says, obedience matters. And obedience isn't done out of drudgery or out of this duty or commitment, though those things are true. He says, obedience leads to love. The more we obey God, the greater we love him. Like obedience leads to our love for him. It's a joyful obedience. If obedience for us isn't joyful, we should ask the question, why? Why do I not want to follow God? What is blocking me from wanting to obey Him? What is blocking me from wanting, wanting to submit my life to Him? And again, we can deflect. We can say, all those people are pushing on me. That this is my stuff. Why do I not want to obey God? Is it because I'm lacking trust? Is it because I find something else more fun? Is it because I don't really believe that he has the best life for me? Not the easiest life for me. The best, most fulfilling, most life-giving, this brings my soul to life kind of life. If I don't believe that God has that for me, man, sin's fun. And sin is enticing. I'm going to go that route. John says, if we claim to abide, which means to live, to make our home there, not just, not just to follow Jesus, but to make our home with him, to live with him. If we claim to abide, then we live the same way Jesus did, which means we imitate him. Jesus, the progression could go kind of like this. Jesus, I want to follow you, but not yet. Jesus, I want to follow you, but not entirely. Jesus, I want to follow you. I remember years ago having a conversation with a, a young person who said, I get Jesus, and when I'm an adult, I'll follow him. <laughs> yeah, it, that sounds really good. Except, you don't know. And the more you tune him out of your life, the deafer you get. To be able to not hear is frustrating. But when you plug your ears constantly, you, you just get deaf to it. So maybe you'll be able to do that. That sounds really good. Probably not. Jesus, I want to follow you, but not entirely. Like, I'll follow you as long as it's comfortable. I'll take the life that you get. Thank you for sacrificing for me. And as long as it's comfortable, I'm yours. I'll follow you. But when obedience is hard, not yet. 
I like the saving part, but the whole continual humility and submission to you, not my favorite words. So I'll follow you, but not entirely. That we could get to a place that we just say, Jesus, I want to follow you. Period. I want to be like you. I want to give myself to you. I think that's, that's the goal. People talk about kairos moments. These moments of impact where God speaks to you, where he shows you something in your life that is not right, or he gives you an opportunity to respond to something. And if life is just kind of this straight line trajectory, these kairos moments show up on the timeline of life. And if we would be brave enough to engage, it's like we take this circle path to say, I want to I I pause and see where I'm at. I want to listen to God, and I want to, I want to ask him what's going on. I want to reflect on why he's talking to me about this time, and I want to confess this to people to say, God is bugging me. There is something going on, and I messed this up, and God is calling me to, to admit it, to own it, or I'm not living yet, or I'm not being brave, and God is calling me to bravery and to courage, and I need to tell you about it. And I don't want to just stop there. I want to make a plan so that I could live this kind of life. And I don't want to just make a plan. I want to be accountable to you. And then I want to actually do the thing. A Kairos moment becomes powerful when we get brave and courageous enough to stop what we're doing, to pay attention to what Jesus is saying, and say, now I'm going to do something different. That's called obedience. And John says, if you claim to live in him, you walk like Jesus did. If you claim to live in him, you obey. Where are you? (coughs) Jesus, I want to follow you, but not yet. Jesus, I want to follow you, but not entirely. Jesus, I want to follow you. Life is full of missing the mark. Let's not pretend. Let's not hide. Let's not deceive ourselves or call God a liar. May we be people who admit our sin, who lean on Jesus, our advocate, our atoning sacrifice. May we be people who follow Jesus with everything we have. Let's pray. Father, we all have sin. And John doesn't want to hide it. John doesn't want to cover over it. Doesn't doesn't want to make light of sin. But he does talk about grace. He does talk, Jesus, about you. Grace doesn't make light of sin. Grace is the only thing that has the power to overcome sin. Jesus, you... You were the sacrifice. You are the sacrifice. And you live today. You conquered death. You defeated it so that we can have a life like yours. Would you be people? Would you make us people who follow you with our whole hearts? Would you make us radiant as you are radiant? that we would shine bright in a dark world, that we would love like no other, because that's what you do.